Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, an award-winning weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Damian Garde, recording from STAT's New York City Bureau. I'm Adam Feuerstein, coming to you from STAT's worldwide headquarters in Boston. And I'm Rebecca Robbins, recording from STAT's outpost in San Francisco. But wait, Damien, did you mention something about the Read Out Loud winning an award? Yes, we are happy to announce that the Read Out Loud was named the best small podcast of 2019 by Editor and Publisher Magazine. We should also thank our producer, Hyacinth Epinado, for all her work behind the scenes. Thank you, Hyacinth. You're welcome, Adam. All right, let's get back to the show. It is Thursday, October 31st, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First up this week, an FDA advisory panel just voted to recommend that a controversial drug to prevent premature births should be pulled from the market. But will the FDA follow through on the advice? Our stat colleague, Ed Silverman, joins us to discuss. Then we'll query Rebecca about her recent trip to Las Vegas, where she mingled with some big names in the fast-growing digital health sector. Next, our D.C. colleague Lev Fasher drops in to explain why Democrats believe developing fewer innovative drugs is an acceptable trade-off for dramatically lower drug prices. And lastly, we'll bring you a Halloween edition of The Lightning Round, featuring scary hot takes. But first, a word about Stat Plus. Enjoying the read out loud? Subscribe to Stat Plus to get stories like these. Stat Plus delivers daily market-moving coverage from across biotech, pharma, and the life sciences. Subscribe today to get access to breaking news, exclusives, and analysis from our award-winning team. Subscribe to Stat Plus today at statnews.com slash subscribe. And as a special thanks for being a Read Out Loud listener, enjoy 10% off your first year by using the code POD, P-O-D. As we mentioned in the lead-in to this week's episode, the future of a controversial but currently approved drug to prevent premature births is now in doubt after a panel of experts recommended that the FDA hold the drug from the market. But whether the FDA follows through on that advice is not clear. Our stat colleague, Ed Silverman, has been following this unusual story, and he joins us to discuss it. Ed, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Hey, Ed. So let's step back for a moment. Explain what this drug is and why it's considered controversial in the first place. Well, McKenna is used to prevent premature births, which is a big issue. And It's been around for about eight years now since FDA approved it. It was approved under the accelerated approval program that required a confirmatory or follow-up trial. The top-line results were released in March. The full results were released late last week, and the trial showed that the drug wasn't effective, after all, compared to placebo. So that was a big, unexpected surprise. And that brings us to this week's FDA advisory panel, which tasked experts with deciding McKenna's fate. What happened? Well, there was a lot of toing and froing, as is typical at these meetings. The FDA briefing documents released in advance of the meeting raised some questions. It was a little hard to parse which way the medical reviewers on the FDA staff were headed, but they basically wanted the panel to, bottom line, vote whether they should recommend the drug remain on the market or be withdrawn. And the, the panel debated a lot of the data that was presented, of course, by the FDA and the company that sells the drug, which is called AMAG Pharmaceuticals. So what was AMAG Pharmaceuticals, what was their rationale for keeping the drug on the market, even though their clinical trials showed no benefit? Well, the company parsed some data. One critic accused the company essentially of data dredging, but basically the company tried to argue that there are subsets that show that there was some benefit. And of course, that is a controversial approach, generally speaking. It didn't really work well 
at least with nine of the 16 panel members the other day. So after that vote took place, obviously the recommendations are now toward the FDA. Is there any indication about what the agency will do next about this drug? No, and that's probably going to set up a great debate because the issue here is the extent to which the agency will try to keep a drug on the market, but also attempt for another trial to occur to generate evidence of benefit. But if it withdraws the drug, well, then the market would mostly be picked up by compounders. That sort of pivots us into a different but related discussion about the extent to which the agency wants compounders to fill a void of this sort. And the FDA is still mired in, if not controversy, a lot of effort to provide proper oversight of certain types of compounding facilities. So it raises larger issues of concerns about safety if a brand name drug that is presumably manufactured according to good manufacturing practices or regulatory standard. And that is a key issue that the FDA is believed to be looking at or will be looking at now. And that backstory sort of played a role, I guess, in this FDA advisory panel and the ultimate FDA decision, right, Ed? I mean, we we call this drug controversial, but it's been actually controversial for quite a long time. Can you kind of explain what happened back in 2011 when this drug was first approved? Well, the basic drug had been around for a long time, available from compounders, and the FDA wanted to ensure that there was a brand drug that was available for preventing premature births that was made according to proper manufacturing standards. And so it it approved it back in 2011. But there was the classic unintended consequence. At the time, it was owned by another company called KV Pharmaceuticals, which won orphan designation from the FDA as part of the approval. That meant KV had seven years of market exclusivity, which gave the company the right to say to compounders, hey, goodbye, you can't sell your compounded version anymore. That caused an uproar because KV had started charging, I forget the price now, but a lot of money compared to what the compounders were selling it for. Not surprisingly, a lot of doctors and payers started to complain bitterly that this approval created a monopoly situation that was also very expensive unnecessarily. So the Obama administration was very sensitive to the idea that a government agency created a monopoly. So what happened? The FDA kind of backpedaled and didn't force compounders to stop compounding. So as a result, the product became a little bit more accessible. But that episode was sort of an early example of a lot of the things we've been discussing and seeing in droves in the last few years with price gouging and high prices and some cases accusations of monopolies. So Ed, with all of that background and in the context of the advisory committee, do we know when we might hear a final ruling from the FDA on this issue? No, not yet. I think AMAG is supposed to uh, release earnings, coincidentally, in the next several days. And some Wall Street analysts are hoping there'll be a little bit more clarity on what the conversations are like right now between the company and the agency. But I don't have a specific date to offer you. All right, thanks for joining us. Sure. Happy Halloween. (laughs) You too. I am a big fan of our podcast segments where Stat sends Rebecca to Las Vegas to attend a conference, and then we ask her what she learned. 
So I am too, and this time Rebecca visited that oasis in the Nevada desert to attend Health 2019, which bills itself as the largest and most important conference on health innovation. And of course, health is spelled H-L-T-H because millennials hate vowels. So Rebecca, why am I suddenly hearing about this health conference and where did it come from? These are questions I have too. This conference came out of nowhere. So it was founded last year, as in in 2018. So this week's conference was only its second ever iteration. The conference was founded by Jonathan Weiner, who's a venture partner at the fund Oak HCFT. He also previously worked in business development at, at Google. And somehow, this conference pulled together tons of big names. They got Seema Verma, administrator of CMS, other Trump administration officials. On the company side, they got Ann Wojcicki from 23andMe, David Feinberg from Google, Mark Cuban from Shark Tank. I'm just baffled by how quickly this brand new conference was able to pull together all the big names in the industry. One thing that I thought was sort of intriguing was that this conference was held alongside and organized by the same people who put on a payments conference called Money 2020. So in theory, they probably got economies of scale, right? Because you can get good deals when you buy out half of Las Vegas for a week. So Rebecca, I think there are like two types of conferences in the world. There are conferences where news happens, and then there are conferences where no news happens. Which kind was this one? You know, I was expecting this to be a news-free conference packed with marketing messages only, but I was actually surprised that there were a decent number of announcements by companies that had a presence there. I thought the most interesting one probably came from Facebook, which rolled out a preventive health tool. The idea is that people can use the site to get reminders and uh, log decisions about taking a cholesterol test or a mammogram or getting a flu shot. If that sounds a little suspicious to you, that Facebook, the company that is just bogged down with a thousand controversies, you're not alone. And the company promised that it would treat this information with strict safeguards. They're not going to sell your data, uh, not going to let ads be targeted to you based on this data. But it was certainly an announcement that uh, got a lot of attention. That said, I think the biggest news of all was not a company announcement, but it was some reporting from Reuters. Reuters reported that Alphabet, uh, the parent company of Google, made an offer for Fitbit. There's no deal yet in place, but if it does happen, it would certainly transform the market for wearables and tracking devices that is playing a bigger and bigger role in medicine. So one of the biggest storylines in health tech in recent months has been all of these moves by big tech companies into health. And so, you know, as you mentioned a little bit before, given all the privacy controversies that we've seen in in other arenas with these same companies, was there any discussion at the conference of how real people feel about the concept of Facebook and Google getting their hands on medical data? Yeah, actually, a report came out this week from Rock Health and the Stanford Center for Digital Health that raised this very question in a survey. They asked 4,000 adults and found that just 10% of consumers were willing to share their data with tech companies. That differed across the various companies. So they asked uh, about Google, they asked about uh, Lyft and and Uber. But I think it should be considered and taken into account as these companies are moving into the healthcare realm that consumers are not thrilled with the idea of handing over their health data. So Rebecca, I noticed that some of the Twitter conversations centered around complaints that despite all the health executives at this conference, there weren't enough patients. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's a fair critique. And it's certainly one that's not limited to health. That said, I think there were a few kind of jarring notes. Um, 
One was a, a presentation from MasterCard. Someone on Twitter shared a PowerPoint presentation that emphasized patient billing and, and past due collections. And the company put out a press release that used a new euphemism, patient payment assurance. And so I think that kind of focus on how can we get patients to pay up is a little jarring. And I think one that maybe doesn't speak to the real problems at hand here. So maybe to close, Rebecca, and most importantly, how are you next going to get yourself to Vegas on Stats Dime? You know, that's a good question. Two years ago, I went to Vegas on Stats Dime to cover a conference on the science of gambling addiction, which was pretty wild. So maybe I'll have to go to that again next year. How many new drugs do we need exactly? That has been a conversation in Washington, D.C. over the past few weeks. And what started it was an analysis from the Congressional Budget Office, which estimated that the Democrats' plan for drug pricing would save taxpayers hundreds of billions of dollars, but result in a roughly 5% reduction in the number of new drugs over 10 years. That arguably supports the drug industry's age-old argument that regulating drug prices would stifle medical advances. But some Democrats are running with the idea that the benefits of cheaper medicine are worth a small reduction in new drugs. Lev Fasher, Stats Washington correspondent, wrote about that evolution this week, and he joins us now to talk about it. Lev, thanks for coming back to the podcast. My pleasure. Hi, everybody. So, Lev, as you wrote in your story, the idea that developing slightly fewer new drugs is worthwhile if all drugs get cheaper has long been a sort of third rail in policy discussions. So what changed between then and now? What changed is that the Congressional Budget Office actually quantified the impacts, at least partially and preliminarily, of Nancy Pelosi's drug pricing bill, the one we've all essentially been waiting for since the beginning of the year. And while it projected absolutely massive cost savings, up to $345 billion saved for American taxpayers in the next decade, and a hit to industry of between $500 billion and $1 trillion, it also projected that as a result of that lost revenue, drug companies might end up bringing between 8 and 15 fewer new drugs to market. So that really forced Democrats to grapple with these nonpartisan projections that their bill would indeed result in what they see as a very small hit to innovation. And now they have to defend the bill on its merits and on the consequences. And so how are Democrats defending the bill to the public? You know, the short answer is that they're really not. Most Democrats are still not willing to grant this premise that a reduction in drug prices automatically leads to a reduction in new drugs and a reduction in innovation. But there are a few Democrats who have not really towed the party line in recent weeks. One is Congressman Darren Soto. He's from Florida. And at a recent hearing, he essentially made the utilitarian case that we have not heard lawmakers willing to make as long as drug pricing has been this high profile policy issue in Washington. He essentially said, sure, eight to 15 new drugs. That's out of a projected 300 new drugs that would be approved in that time frame of a decade. I think it's worth it. People can't afford their drugs now. And 
a natural consequence of significantly reducing prices is this marginal, marginal impact to innovation. There have been other lawmakers who've agreed, Anna Eshu notably, who's the chairwoman of the House Energy and Commerce Health Subcommittee and represents a lot of biotech in her Silicon Valley district. She basically was arguing, look, folks, 95 to 97% of new drugs are still going to be approved. And for someone who represents that much biotech, obviously she doesn't want to harm innovation. And she says so repeatedly, but she's taken the glass half full perspective. There's this new acknowledgement that, yes, there is going to be a degree of impact and we find it worth it. So, Lev, a big part of the argument is over which new drugs would not get developed. Uh, you know, are we talking about potential cures that like seems that everybody in society wants? Or are these the Me Too medicines that arguably aren't really needed? Where did the experts come down on that question? You know, part of the problem is that this legislation is still being formulated and the CBO projection was really a, a preliminary, imprecise projection. So it's hard to know and people are pretty split. But the negotiation mechanism that this bill provides for essentially lets the health secretary pick at right now, it's a, a minimum of 35 drugs and a maximum of 250 to negotiate. And the idea is that they would negotiate the price of drugs that patients have the most trouble affording and drugs that cost taxpayers the largest amount of money. So it, it follows that we're going to talk about not just expensive drugs and not just drugs with big patient populations, but both. So what that has led people to worry about is that for common diseases that don't yet have cures, drug companies would be disincentivized to invest in innovation. A common example people use is Alzheimer's. There are other schools of thought that this would, for instance, as you said, Adam, reduce the development of Me Too drugs, that this would reduce the development perhaps of drugs that already have therapeutic competition. So there are people who view this as just an effort to essentially streamline the pharmaceutical industry to maybe cut a little bit of excess innovation as they see it, costly innovation that they see as not really improving health outcomes that produces drugs that already have a therapeutic competitor. But there are people, as I said, who have this really more profound concern about the major untreated, uncured health conditions of our time being threatened in terms of private sector investment by this approach. So, Lev, like a lot of people, I spend far too much time on Twitter, but I did think that it was interesting to see how your story was received on that website. I saw left-leaning people who were cheering on Democrats for what they perceived as taking on the drug industry. And then I saw that conservative personality Ann Coulter retweeted the story, and she didn't append a note to that, but I think it's fair to assume that she didn't do so because she thought it made Democrats look good. So what do you make of the reaction of people basically pointing to the same facts but drawing different political conclusions? So when I woke up very early on Wednesday morning and grabbed my phone and opened Twitter, as I do all too often, I assumed the Ann Coulter account that retweeted me was just an account kind of humorously named after Ann Coulter, the conservative personality. Uh, and then I woke up later and, and the tweet had gone kind of viral in conservative media. And it intrigued me, too, because, you know, this is a story that quotes a lot of academic experts and researchers essentially posing the question in very blunt terms, do we over incentivize innovation? Are we developing costly specialty drugs for small patient populations or drugs that only marginally improve clinical outcomes? at the expense of essentially 
millions of Americans being able to afford drugs that have been on the market forever. People love to use insulin as an example. So I think the story did two things. Democrats have clearly found this flexibility in recent weeks to make this very frank, very candid utilitarian argument. Yeah, we need to get prices down. And that has a very small cost. And we're going to make the argument to you that it's worth it. And Republicans who love to cast Democratic proposals as, you know, socialist and a, a fundamental threat to the standard of healthcare in the United States have really been able to seize on this and say, look, even Democrats admit there are some treatments that are just not going to come to fruition as a result of this bill. The question is, which ones? And Republicans and, and the pharmaceutical industry and a lot of patient groups are pushing the argument harder than ever that it's all well and good to say that those 8 to 15 drugs, that 2 to 5% of new drug approvals doesn't matter unless it's you or unless it's your family. And that's really where the flashpoint is. So, Love, tell us, what does all of this mean for this bill's chances of becoming law? You know, I think Democrats were going to have to answer this question at one point or another, because anytime it's been floated to them, and as has been mentioned on the show, it's a pharmaceutical industry talking point. Anytime it's floated that Democratic proposals are going to reduce investment in innovation, lawmakers have just been able to brush it off. Now that it's quantified, even if very imprecisely and controversially, I think Democrats are, are going to have to make this argument when you look at R&D spending levels in other countries, when you look at the price and availability of drugs in the United States compared to other countries. I, I think Democrats are, are just going to have to make this argument that there are masses of people who are rationing drugs, who can't pay for prescription drugs, who rely on patient assistance programs, all of these features of our healthcare system that they view as morally untenable or financially unsustainable. I don't really think it impacts the bill's chances of legislation one way or another, uh, but I think it, it is a good thing that people are having this conversation in in more frank terms than ever, because it was something that Republicans and Democrats alike could talk about in vague terms and, and really dance around. And, you know, everyone could talk about their perspective in the extreme. Now that there are numbers, now that there's a quantification, at least the, the Congressional Budget Office has provided a basis for debate. So it'll be really interesting to see how much Democrats are, are willing to run with it and how much Republicans find that it's politically advantageous to seize on on this admission of what the facts of this bill really are. Lev, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. And now, of course, it is time for the lightning round. <laughs> so first up this week, we're going to talk about the latest news regarding Novartis's Zolgensma gene therapy. Adam, brief us. So as most people are aware, Zolgensma is used to treat the rare and fatal disease uh, spinal muscular atrophy. It's also very expensive, $2.1 million per treatment. Novartis is trying to expand the use of that into some older children with SMA. Hit a bit of a snag today when the FDA placed uh, one of its clinical trials on hold. Uh, that was due to a safety concern that was found in an animal study. And how concerning is this? That's a good question, Rebecca. It's not entirely clear. So what the company has said is that they were doing an animal study, a safety study, and they found, and I'm just going to quote this, dorsal root ganglia mononuclear cell inflammation in these animals. Now, there's no evidence that this is something that is 
bothersome to people. They found no evidence in patients who were already taking Zolgensma, but out of a lot of precaution, uh, the FDA placed the clinical trial on hold. So it's also worth noting that this comes in the context of the fact that we all spent the whole summer parsing apart Novartis's relationship with the FDA in light of the data falsification scandal in which there was an issue that Novartis reported to the agency much later than the agency wanted them to. And so, Adam, as you mentioned, all the signs of abundance of caution, you know, no signs of problems in actual patients are very much worth noting. But it's difficult to resist the temptation to kind of don the tinfoil hat when it comes to the FDA stopping Novartis from doing what it wants to do with this product in particular. Moving on, let's talk about the return of David Hung, a well-known biotech CEO. Damien, tell us what he's up to now. So yes, David Hung has returned to public life in biotech with a company called Nuvation Bio, which raised $275 million and said almost nothing else about what it's going to do. The interesting thing, I think, at least for me personally, is, is the name David Hung. As you may recall, he sort of became a cause celebre in biotech with the company Medivation, which developed a drug for prostate cancer and then, maybe most important in the minds of investors, sold itself to Pfizer for $14 billion. His next act, however, was as CEO of Axovant, which has become, in many ways, a cautionary tale, I think, in biotech circles. But that was a company that had a a treatment for Alzheimer's disease that ended up not being any better than placebo. And if I recall, um, there's something funny about David Hung's LinkedIn account, Damien. Yeah, I some time ago, I guess about more than a year ago, kind of just stumbled upon uh, David's LinkedIn and noticed that Axivant was not mentioned at all after he had resigned from the company. And I asked him why, and, and he told me that that's something he's working to put far behind him, which I, I don't know, I, you don't often see social media revisionism on behalf of executives, but I, I didn't get much of an explanation. And Damon, you wrote quite a bit, I recall, a few years back about Alzheimer's being David Hung's white whale. So it's interesting to uh, see him move to seven mechanically distinct programs uh, after that quest. Yeah, no, that was a question I had immediately when I heard he was moving on is whether it would have involvement in Alzheimer's or neuroscience, because for people, you know, willing to reach back in the memory bank before Medivation became a star in the biotech constellation because of this prostate cancer drug, it invested very heavily into a treatment for Alzheimer's that, much like the one that Axivan had, turned out to be no better than uh, placebo in clinical trials. Well, David now has $275 million to spend on his new company. So good luck, David. Our last item is about uh, CRISPR therapeutic CEO, Sam Kulkarni, uh, spending a bit of time in the desert. Tell us about that, Rebecca. So that conference has become rather controversial recently, given the murder last year of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi, who was killed under circumstances that implicated the Saudi government. Uh, So last year, a bunch of executives and high-profile attendees pulled out. This year, however, folks are back in town, and one of the attendees is CRISPR Therapeutic CEO Sam Kulkarni. So, Damien... What did the company say when you asked them about his attendance? Yeah, the statement I got from a spokesperson was, quote, the company is focused on how they can be engaged with the global patient community, end quote. And they left it at that. But I think the interesting thing is that this seemed like such a live wire just one year ago, and it would seem that the biggest wigs of industry have moved on. It's not just the CEO of CRISPR Therapeutics, but, you know, members of the Trump government and representatives from the biggest banks in the world, many of whom boycotted it last year, were seemingly happy to attend once 2019 came around. Money talks. 
that does it for another episode of the Read Out Loud. Thank you to Hyacinth Empanado, who produced this week's episode. Matthew Orr and Alyssa Ambrose are our senior producers, and Rick Burke is our executive producer. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you'd like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and which Las Vegas conference Rebecca should attend next. You can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. We really do appreciate the feedback. And if you like what we do, you can leave us a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform that you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.